So this morning we're going to be in Romans 5, in the first five verses of that chapter. And as is our practice, if you're not familiar to Covenant, we're grateful for you here. But one of the things that we do, we, we would ask that in this time you would stand now for the reading of God's Word. And I want to remind you that this is the Word of the Lord. There is no other. It's perfect. It's holy. It's unerring. It's without error. It changes lives. So hear now the word of the Lord. Let's give careful attention to its reading. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Grass withers and the flower fades, But the word of the Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. Yeah, so why Romans 5? Well, this section is a bit of an appetizer into the feast that we've been in, in chapter 8. It's sort of an entree explaining the wonderful works of, of God in the life of a believer. And, and these works are entirely dependent upon God's movement toward us in Christ through the Spirit who was sent by the Father and the Son. And it's here in the beginning of chapter 5, in fact it's uh, as well in the end of chapter 4, four that Paul, Paul sort of gets, he gets personal in the way he starts writing He shifts uh, a bit of his language, and it's here that he begins to use sort of the first person plural, we and, and our, because he's showcasing that justification by faith is yours. It's ours. We have these truths. These truths of God, they belong to us. They belong to us. And they belong to us precisely because of faith through Christ. Essentially saying, you have all of what I'm about to tell you right now in this section. And he's going to get to it and unpack it. And that's what we've been doing in chapter 8. And yet Paul is saying, he's sort of breaking into this doxological writing. Writing of worship to God. One commentator says, It's like Paul is singing these truths. Yet Paul arrives here by logical, God-inspired truths that that build one upon the other. So if you're not familiar with Romans at all, if you've not read Romans at all, or perhaps you've not read Romans all the way through, I want to talk a little bit about how we get here. How do we get to Paul's use of the word therefore? Well, he begins... His letter with a thesis. 
It's, it's there in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, The righteous shall live by faith. That's his thesis. And he goes on to explain the problem of sin, particularly as it relates to moral and social chaos in the world. And he explains the result of that sin, which is God's righteous judgment that stands against humanity, who in their unrighteousness of sin and condemnation, they reject God's law. And they approve those who join with them in the rejection of God's moral law. And so they, they work in their own self-governed or autonomous sinful projects, is what Paul's saying. That's why we see the chaos and sin in the world. For those who seek self-glory, for those who are reveling in that glory, for those who seek their own honor, their own immortality, Paul says in chapter 2 that God's wrath and fury is reserved for them. And then he goes on to say that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you can read God's law as it's codified in in the Ten Commandments or not, you have the law of God on your heart. When I talk to my neighbor and I say, well, how do you know? How do you know that it's wrong to go over to our other neighbor's house and steal his stuff? Well, I just know. Well, where'd you get that from? Paul says very clearly that the law of God is written on the hearts of all image bearers. And since that it's, that's the case, it proves that you are a law breaker. You do not keep and you will never keep God's moral law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. So Paul goes on to to say that, yes, in the midst of this unrighteousness, we need an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness that is not our own, so that we can be in right relationship with God. And so Paul goes on to explain in chapters 3 and 4 of this foreign, this extrinsic, not intrinsic to our own righteousness, but an extrinsic one, a foreign righteousness that Christians possess through faith. They don't have it as a result of their obedience to the law or even in the example of Abraham that he talks about through the law of circumcision. In fact, he uses Abraham, the patriarch, as an example of a Christian, if I could say. Meaning that Abraham was justified in a faith that trusted God. And God provided Abraham certain signs to show him his need for the coming Messiah through circumcision, blood being shed, and a part of the body being cast off, right? Through being asked to sacrifice his own son and then providing a substitute that his son may go free and that the wrath of God would be poured out on that ram. Signs Abraham was given that he trusted in as he looked to those signs by faith, And out of that faith came a genuine faith, a one that walked with God. When God said, Abraham, go, and Abraham would say, God, where am I going? And God would say, I'll tell you when you get there. A faith that was living and active. He was justified, anticipating the coming 
of the Messiah. And so Paul moves through history quite quickly after that example. And he argues that the righteousness of God has been revealed just as the Hebrew scriptures anticipated. The righteousness of God is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Christ who lived, Christ who died, Christ who rose again. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in these verses that we actually see the the doctrines that were so prominently on display in the Reformation, Protestant Reformation of the 15th through 18th centuries. The Reformers taught what came to be known as the five solas. We see four of them right here in this passage. Grace, faith, the glory of God, and Christ. What Paul is showing in this text is that in order to have grace, faith, to know the glory of God, you must have it through Christ. Through Christ alone. And no one else. Nothing else? No one else. Not through individual autonomy. Not through human reason. Not through religious zeal but through Christ alone. So the first point, justification by faith through Christ. The great doctrine of justification by faith undergirds Paul's argument for this text. God tells us that we are justified on the basis of someone else's work. That's Christ perfect in his sacrificial life on our behalf. And justification is that irrevocable declaration. Meaning, you can't undo it. You can't. Upon Christ's death and resurrection, that justification was ours. It was yours. It was credited to you personally. But it awaited to be applied to you. At just the right time, we say, when God saved you, when God regenerated you, when God birthed you anew, as Jesus explains to Nicodemus, when you were born again. It was merited by Christ on the cross, and it's imputed, we say. It's credited to us by the Spirit. So therefore, justification is God's declaration, hear this, that you are declared not guilty. Not guilty. And out of that declaration does Paul then explain all these benefits that are now yours, that are ours. Yet justification by faith is applied to us, which is credited to us. Look there at the language, passively, by faith. Look there at the grammar. We have been justified. Scripture cares about grammar. 
God cares about grammar. Even though we live in an age where the world seems to be moving in a way to to deny the simple meaning of basic words. God won't do that. Your justification by faith has been done and applied to you. It's not a fictional, made-up reality by certain men who wanted power. No, Christians are truly right with God because God has actively done it for you so that it passively, it's yours. It's yours. Therefore, if you're seeking righteousness by works of the law, you gain nothing. Faith is abolished and and peace, in the next part of this verse, peace is unattainable. But yet, by faith, when you have justification, when you have been justified, we gain everything. You gain everything. When Scripture speaks of faith, it describes it as, as a receiving, a, a resting on Christ and His righteousness. And the instrument of that Justification is the very faith that we have, that that grace of God given to us, a gift that we receive, not of our own doing, but passively given to us. And it's never alone, brothers and sisters, but it's accompanied by all these other saving graces that are joined with it. And they're all from God. And this is what Paul's now personally excited about, explaining to his brothers and sisters at Rome of which I am excited about explaining to you. But you may have come in here this morning and thought to yourself, well, yeah, that's good and all, but my faith is so small. You know, I'm riddled with sin. I see all the holes in my life. You don't don't see them. And we may have this tendency to put on our nice clothes, put a smile on for a couple hours, And then go home and everything is different on the outside because it's consistent with the inside. And you may be asking in light of of what I've said, well, how am I, who am I to deserve such as this as a guilty, shameful sinner? But hear this, brothers and sisters. Faith is the means of God's salvation. Regardless of the measure of your faith, whether it is small and tiny in your mind, whether it is great and you come here so strong in the faith that you have, whether it is weakened by all the stresses, pressures and trials that you've experienced in this life, or whether that faith is attacked, not only by the world, but by the evil one, perhaps even by the family in which you live. Faith always gets the victory in the end because the fountain for faith is Christ. And unlike you, his well never empties. The faith of the saints will make it across the finish line. So one, justification by faith through Christ. Paul then says, Number two, peace. We have peace through Christ. Paul says as a result of our justification by faith, we have peace with God. 
Now, if you look at your Bible there, you might see a little footnote where it says, we have peace with God. Instead of saying, we have peace with God, some may say, most of your English translations don't, but I figured I'd make a mention of it. Some may say, let us have peace with God. And there's a difference between saying, we have peace with God, and let us have peace with God. Now, the latter, let us have peace with God, is is unlikely given the consistency of original grammar and Paul's logic, but it would still be true even if the latter is original. As his children, we have peace with God, and his children must live in that daily peace that God has given to us. Christians are no longer enemies of God because the wrath of God, which was formerly against us, was received by Christ on his death, at his death, and he was raised for our justification, as Paul has already said. So it goes to be, it's, it needs to be said again. Christ, in Christ, God has made peace with you. One theologian puts it this way, everything is finished. There is nothing left for us to do. We can with our whole soul and for all time rest in that perfect work of redemption which Christ has achieved. We may accept in faith the fact that God has laid aside his wrath and in that, in that, in Christ, he is a reconciled God and Father for guilty and unholy sinners. You know, wars today even as war for us looms on the horizon as a nation, wars in this world, they usually end with some form of a peace peace treaty, perhaps sporadic ceasefires, but they're usually brought to an end through some form of peace treaty. But unlike the wars between countries, our war with God, we would never win. We would never win it. The end of war with God as his enemy would only be our demise and the eventual death penalty. But Christ, Christ is the terms of God making peace with you. He is the final peace offering. He is the satisfaction so that the war, it's over. It's over. It's yours. And so, brother and sister, cheer up. Cheer up. God has made peace with you. Now, you may say, well, my problem is not that I'm at war with God. (laughs) Really? Okay. Well, Scripture has to say that that declaration of war being over, that Christ being the peace treaty, has to inform how you live with others. So let me ask you some questions. Is anger your your pastime? Would you describe yourself as a man or a woman who has low-grade anger? Do you have explosive fits of rage? Malice speech that demeans 
and belittles others who are made in the image of God, who are near to you in your places of work, in your extended family, even in your own family. Young ones, can I see your faces? Do you get angry at mom and dad and explode at them? Do you shout at your brother and sister? Spouses, do you bottle up anger until finally one day when your other spouse has no clue what's going on? They're getting blown up by you with words that should never be uttered, thoughts that should never have been there to begin with. You've forgotten that God has made peace with you. The call is to repent. To repent of that, brothers and sisters. It does you no good. If we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, let us live in that peace with one another and our neighbor because God has made peace with you. Is what Paul's saying? He's made peace with you. Two, uh, thirdly, excuse me, grace through Christ is now ours. Paul says in, in verse 2, Christians live in the presence of God's grace. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity, Scripture speaks of grace in sort of two main categories. The first is what is called a common grace that that all people everywhere receive. It's that grace that is unmerited. You live in it. You enjoy it as an image bearer. It doesn't save you. It doesn't put you in right relationship with God. But God extends it to you and to all people everywhere in our fallen state of sin. Right? You, you get to live. You get to move. You get to have your being. You get to enjoy eating, dancing, music, love. All of those things is common grace of God to the world. But then, of course, there is this unmerited grace, this unique grace of salvation that is God's special favor towards his elect, those whom he saves, those who believe in Christ Jesus. And in this passage, it's, it's God's special grace that's in view. The use of this word grace emphasizes less of, less of God's attitude of favor towards believers to save us from our sins, which is true, but it's more about God's favor in our current daily mercies upon which we live each day. That's what Paul has in view. And he says we stand in this favor of God because we are now in the presence of God. Was there ever a place that you weren't allowed to go, but when you eventually did, it sort of changed your life? I grew up some of you know I grew up in Massachusetts, Taxachusetts, as I call it. But my, most of you don't know that my father was a mechanic. And we had our small piece of real estate that we lived in, and 
a thickly settled area. In fact, we have had signs. I don't see those around here, thickly settled. But we live next to Worcester, Massachusetts. If you know that city, which is the second largest city in all of New England, as far as population is concerned. And at that time, before the internet and iPhone, shocker, you know, I lived as a kid where I, I didn't know much about the world outside. You basically know what's in front of you. And of course, yes, at that time, we had television and you know, Nintendo was the big thing. And yet in the early spring of 1989, my father was between jobs as he was preparing to open up his first business as a mechanic. And my parents decided to do something really great. We were going to take six weeks and we were going to travel the states, which was pretty awesome. And we had this Rockwood pop-up trailer. You know, you crank it up and it goes up and pops out. And we had this Pontiac Bonneville station wagon. Yeah, that's right, with the wood panel siding, right, and, and the vinyl seats, right, that during the, those summer hot temperatures scalded your skin when you wore shorts. But that, that's what we did in the summer of 1989. We drove cross-country and back. It was amazing. And some days we drove, I kid you not, upwards of 15 to 16 hours in that sweltering, hot, no AC, formerly diesel, now gasoline, ask me about it later, car. Three boys in the middle, the back of that enormous car, filled with all the resources, of course, to get us across the states. And I sat in the middle. It was basically torture. And I would watch my dad at times put up with us cranky boys. And my mother at times, bless her heart, she was the one who had everything to say about his driving all the time. Uh, He put up with it all. Sometimes he had to stop the car, take a deep breath. Sometimes he had to stop the car and get out and... And he'd walk 15 yards away and come back, get in the car. But I'll never forget, I'll never forget one day, we were driving for hours and I fell asleep. And we had stopped. My dad woke me up and everybody was out of the car already. He pulled me out of the car, gently of course. And I'm I'm blurry in my vision because I'm still kind of waking up. I had been asleep for hours and I... I picked my head up, and there we were at the northern rim of the Grand Canyon. I couldn't believe it. What my eyes saw as that young eight-year-old, and I thought to myself, who am I? I'm a no-name from this no-name town in the middle of no-name state, and I get to see this. Of course, I wanted to tell all my friends about it when I got home. But there I was. And then I had this thought, thinking about that. I wasn't there because of anything I had done. My father did all the work. He's the one who labored to give us access to that beautiful vista of God's artistic hand and all the other things that we got to see throughout the United States that summer. Paul says that through Christ, 
we have obtained access into the grace in which we now stand. Access to this grace is not access to a beautiful space, but it's access to God. We stand, we live, we move, we have our being in the presence of the Almighty. Everywhere we go, every thought we have, wherever you lay your head, there God is. It's the psalmist over and over again who would proclaim that wonderful character of God who is grace. They would say, the Lord is gracious, right, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Paul is exclaiming this this grace that we have, it's, it's got to strike deep roots into our hearts, brothers and sisters. And so Paul then says that we rejoice. We rejoice through Christ in verses 2 through 4. You know, one of the most foremost responses to our relationship with God is that we rejoice. I'm not talking about cheap, happy, frappy sentimentalism. Not at all. But I will say this, and I don't think I'm dim-witted in my studies. I've never heard anyone other than Christians use the word rejoice. It's not common language among other people. Now, there may be some, of course, that you've heard who are not Christians use it, But Christians use it all the time. It's common language among us. Rejoicing is this exuberant joy. Scripture not only commands that believers are to rejoice, but it also teaches us that rejoicing is the overflowing uh, flow of the abiding presence of God. Paul is saying that we rejoice. Uh, Some way you can look at that we boast in the glory of God. We used to fall short of God's glory, but now we boast in it. It's the only permissible kind of pride that a Christian should have. Boasting in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. And so if we are to boast, we boast in Him alone. And yet Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's he talking about there in verse 2? Because there's one of these five solas again. The glory of God. We say, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And it's true. Everything we ought to do as people, all people everywhere should glorify God. But especially Christians Everything we do, all our motivations should be for the glory of God alone and not for man's glory. We don't make much of ourselves, but we are to make much of God. We, we teach our kids, what is the chief end of man? What is it? To glorify God and... Yes. Yet the Reformation's teaching on solo de, soli deo gloria is principally not a program about how we are to glorify God. The glory of God, or to the glory of God alone, is simply about God himself. 
and how he reveals his glory to his creation, to his image bearers, and to his church. David Van Drunen says, God needs no one and no thing to make him glorious. He himself is the origin and author of his glory. So how does God manifest his glory? Well, he manifested through the works of creation and providence. I mean, just look at the beauty of the earth, right? I hope that every single one of us in here would look at the creation, the things that have been made, and see that God's glory is made manifest to us there. It's not God himself, but it is showcasing that he is glorious. Think of the mind that's needed to create the universe. Think of the mind that instrumentally all ordained all things that came to pass throughout just our lives, just our few lives in this room, so that we could actually be here this morning and sit here. Glorious is the appropriate word to describe it all. Yet we see that God also manifests his glory through the Old Testament in particular ways. At certain times, God reveals his glory. And of course, we don't have time to go through all of those particular moments where God reveals himself. But remember Moses. Moses who wanted to see the glory of God. And God said, I can't show you my glory in its fullness because if I do, what would happen? I am that glorious. I am that holy. You'll die. So what does he do? God, as it were, puts his hand in front of Moses as he passed by him. And Moses becomes so radiant that when he goes back down to the people, the people see him and they're fearful because he was so radiant, reflecting the glory of God. But the ultimate manifestation is not only that of God's glory in the Old Testament, But the ultimate manifestation of God's glory is the incarnate Son of God. He's the fullness of God himself. God in Christ Jesus, who is now ascended to glory, who stands interceding on our behalf, who is, as the the writer of Hebrews says, the author and, and founder and perfecter of our faith. So Paul says we rejoice in hope for the glory of God because we have a yearning for something. That is for our glorification, which will come at our death. You know, think about it for a moment. Evolution gives us nothing to yearn for in death. You're just dust, right? We're just meaty protoplasm in this room. Okay? If I could be graphic for a second. You know more than a complex of molecules, a, a more complex sort of fly. Here today, gone tomorrow. Or think of other philosophies. Existentialism says that death is absurd, therefore the future is absurd. Secularism in many ways, I don't know. Could be this, could be that. It doesn't know what it yearns for. Islam fears judgment. Because you're not certain that your bad works outweigh your good works. Eastern religions offer no yearning because of an endless nightmare of reincarnations. But Christianity, Christianity teaches that there, there at death's door, 
we are immediately brought into eternal glory. Free from sin, free from corruption. And that's there, brothers and sisters, not now, but there, that faith and hope are turned to sight. The greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, is love. Paul's going to talk about that in a moment. But Christians rejoice in hope because we know that one day you and I will see the fullness of God as he is, glorified in our state, because you will see Christ as he is. Brothers and sisters, those of us who have gone before us from this very church, look upon the face of the glory of God. That is their joy, and it's ours as well, and it's coming. So Paul says this, hope we rejoice in. But then he says this, which I know is going to be a little harder for many of us. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Paul anticipates sort of the argument that, you know, Christianity is so troubled by calamity, pain, frustration. You know, it's such a restrain on exercising the things I want to do, the law that you guys talk about. It's It's too much to bear, it's archaic, whatever. Paul anticipates the argument that why can, you know, in light of these things, don't consider Christianity. But we know, unlike the world, that our situations are dispensed by the hand of our wise, good, and indulgent Father. We have reasons for our tribulations that belong to God who is now known to us and with us. In fact, it is the consolation of Christ in our very situations that warrants our joy, our endurance, our character, and our hope. We receive assurance. We have assurance of God's work in our sufferings, and it sort of sounds like this. I would never want to do that again, but I know if that not had happened to me, I would not be who I am today. That's what it sounds like. I would have never asked for that for the world but I would not be the person I am today if it had not happened. Paul is saying that Christian suffering produces a cascade of spiritual blessings that prove we belong to God. He says suffering produces endurance, or another word is patience. You know, the world, it murmurs against God. It even curses his name in the midst of challenges and sufferings. And it tries to run as hard as it can from all the pressures of life. But Christian hope, Christian patience, endurance, it it uproots stubbornness. It uproots obstinance, indignation, and a blatant discontentment in God. And it plants something new in its place, doesn't it? It plants character. Paul's using that word as that word in other places refers to the refining of metals. One theologian calls it tried integrity. Suffering produces in you a sterling character, beautiful, can only be described in words like excellent, superlative, unsurpassed, heavenly, wonderful. And that refined character confirms your hope. It strengthens your hope. It seals your hope so that you can confidently say, as we have seen in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this life, what? Shall not compare to the glory that is to be revealed 
to us. And in this way, your hope and suffering is the grounds for assuring you that you belong to God. Brothers and sisters, there is no place for shame where hope is present. And so Paul finishes this within verse 5. He says that you have the Holy Spirit through Christ. Herman Bavink, who is a wonderful theologian, wrote these words, The whole life of the Christian is walking, is a walking in the Spirit. He binds all the believers into one body and builds them up into one temple, a dwelling place of God. He guarantees the heavenly inheritance and will one day affect their resurrection and glorification. In the words of Todd, it's good. You know, God has promised he is always present with us. All those who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, have God the Spirit alone. The prophet Ezekiel, remember? The prophet Joel, they anticipated the day that God said, where God said, I will pour out my Spirit upon you. In those last days, in those latter days, I will do this great work which you have not seen. If you are a Christian here today, you believe precisely because the love of God has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Paul makes it clear that this is not an act of our own. Rather, it is God's passive work, look there again at grammar, has been done to us. And that endurance, that character, that hope that you and I have is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through you, who testifies to you what? That God loves you. Do you know that? God loves you. He loves you. Yes, I will shout it at you. I have a good friend named Ben. He and I went to seminary together. We knew each other before then. We were members in the same church and he started to go to seminary a year before me. He was an engineer by trade. Continued to be an excellent one after seminary. And so we studied the same things. And yet, Over time, he started to really struggle with God. He started to lose confidence in Scripture. He was challenged by many strange teachings, as Paul would say in other letters. He was stricken. He was afflicted. And he struggled and he wrestled and he wrestled and he wrestled with it. And we would be on the phone as he lived in another state, and I'd try to talk to him about it. And we'd go back and forth because we were like fraternal brothers. We would just yell at each other, and it'd be okay, and it wouldn't be a big deal. And we'd pick up the phone, call each other later, and we'd pick up where we left off. And then one day he came down with the diagnosis of cancer. He's my age, has three kids. He suffered for years with cancer, and he still struggled. Then over time, started to have a tenderness. Started to embrace what was coming in his death. And it was a week before he passed away on Christmas Day, just over 14 months ago, 
that he said with confidence, I know God loves me. And I'm confident that he has prepared a place for me. Why did he say that? Because the Spirit keeps his children and sustains them, come what may, because God loves his children. For those who believe the love of God is yours, there's no greater argument than when the faithful are convinced that they are loved by God. Let me pray for us. And now, O Lord God, would you confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, Lord Jesus, and concerning your house, the temple of which you have built, that is your church, spiritually one, spiritually with you, through the work of Christ Jesus. And Lord Jesus, do as you have spoken in Christ. Amen.